This is Chapter 14 of the WCBS 880 Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. What if humans developed the technology that allowed us to control our own evolution? That scary thought is the premise of Change Agent by Daniel Suarez. He spoke with our Rob Hawley. The new book takes us into a possible not-too-distant future where editing our very genes has become big business on the black market. Daniel joins us now. So let's start right with the title, What is a Change Agent? Well, in this book, a change agent is a, a serum that, when injected, begins to transform your genetic sequence and could potentially turn you into somebody else. Think of it as literal identity theft. How did this story come to you? What made you say, you know what, I'm going to take this idea of editing ourselves, and body modification is nothing new, but this idea of editing our very genes and and turn this into a story. How did it come to you? Well, it came to me when I learned about CRISPR genetic editing technology. Now, this is a very real technology that was developed in 2012, and it was based on a natural bacterial immune process. Now, by, by the way, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And that's, a, that's an acronym that doesn't really help explain what it does. But essentially what it is is it's a search and replace engine, but not for words in a Word document, but for genes in a genomic sequence. So essentially, it can be used to search an entire genomic sequence to identify an exact segment that you want to change and then to switch it out with something else. Now, just last month, Chinese researchers were able to correct a genetic disorder in a viable human embryo using CRISPR. So this is a very real technology. Now, when I learned about that, I thought, what are the implications of that a little further down the line? Now, this book takes place in 2045, and by that point, I I depict that human embryos will be routinely edited to fix things like cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease, basically correcting heritable genetic disorders. But if we can do that, what else might parents do to give their children an advantage? You know, they could modify the DAF2 gene to give their children 30 more years of healthy living, or they could modify the MAF2 gene to give their child fast twitch muscle fibers and make them great in sports. So... I thought it was a very interesting world. And, of course, the next logical step beyond that is editing full-grown people. So, and like you said, it's set in 2045, which when I first started to read the books, I thought, oh, wow, that's a long way off. And then I kind of realized, well, no, it's 2017. It's really not that far off. <laughs> so when you're looking at technologies like CRISPR, and, you're, and, you, and you deal with a whole lot of technology from autonomous cars to cryptocurrencies to you know growing literally everything how do you set yeah, robotic your, weapons yeah i mean how do you set yourself up to kind of look around that 20 year corner and, and set that limiter so that the technology makes sense in relation to today and it's only a couple couple decades down the line how do you make that kind of 20 year jump well i'm a voracious consumer of information i'm constantly monitoring trends in and technology and economics and politics, all sorts of things. And I'm trying to see how these trends might gel into the future. So, so let's view it as, uh, let's say, the, uh, the unknown terrain just ahead of us. That fascinates me so much that I'm trying to predict where we might go. And in that sense, I think prototyping the future is certainly a, a lot less costly than, than stumbling into it blind. And, and so that's what interests me so much and what makes me study these things. 
So uh, research is a constant thing for me. You know what? You mentioned economics, and, and that actually comes up a couple times in the book. Uh, early on, you talk about the, the, the death of the middle class in America and it, uh, it and the influence that it had on the main character, Ken Durant. And then it actually comes back much later in the book. He, you touch on it again. How does – two questions related to that. How does that kind of economic change – how did that feed the story – and as you look at the landscape today, are you really that pessimistic about the future of the American middle class? Well, I don't even think it requires me being pessimistic. I think it requires just a, an, a, a realistic assessment of what is currently happening. I think actually my prediction of that is probably one of the, the least unlikely things that I might predict because – Essentially, a lot of the technologies that we're using, I mean, whether it's Uber or Airbnb or, or what have you, has essentially done what's called disintermediation. That is, it's removed a lot of the middlemen between things. And it's what happens is people, individual users, become captive to an individual platform, whatever that is, and the monies pour into its central owner. And Think about the disappearance of the middle class at the same time that we see the disappearance of a lot of middle men or people who intermediate between each other. And that, to me, seems like a process that is going to continue due to technology. So that, that seemed like an obvious uh, uh, beginning point for my story. And, of course, the protagonist uh, has moved abroad as a young person to seek opportunity because of the decline of the middle class uh, in the society uh, that he lives in. And you talked about, I mean, I think it was later in the book where he talked about his specialized skills that let him advance in this new economy. I mean, is that the way is that the way the way of the world going forward? Well, automation, by the way, feeds into this as well. And and I think employment is really the, you know, the big question for people now, uh, certainly in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. Uh, basic minimum income has been discussed. That is, when it only requires, let's say, 2% of the population to do all the work of population, whether that's because of narrow AI algorithms or other automation uh, or disintermediation that I just discussed, what happens to the rest of us? I mean, <clears throat> do we uh, – specialists will, of course, always have jobs, and that's the case for my protagonist, even in 2045. But a large number of people may not be so lucky. And as I've spoken to Silicon Valley before, I had one person tell me, venture capitalists say, you know, we're going to build these systems. We really do have to think about things like basic minimum income, because if you don't deal with the issues of, of uh, how people live, they might set about busying themselves in destroying whatever system you build. So I think that is just one of the really thorny questions we're going to be facing in the next decade. Very early on in the book, and it's not secret, not not a big secret because it's right there in the jacket. So we're not spoiling much. Duran goes through a huge transformation where he is literally turned into another man. That physical transformation starts to play on his psyche actually relatively quickly. It starts to change him uh, mentally and emotionally. How did you get into that aspect of the story? Because it was it, it, seeing the different turns that the physical change had on him emotionally and mentally was really an interesting path. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you felt that way because part of the research that I did was into uh, the way we think and our psychology. And the human faith has an almost you know, magical power to the human psyche. 
and identity. If you take a look at a, uh, a map, a representation of the importance of a human face, that is how we view each other, uh, if you were to size the components of the human body, the face would be enormous compared to the rest of the body because it's how we really root identity. That's why some of the neurological disorders that make it difficult for people to recognize faces are so impactful that suddenly they have no ability to identify individuals. And to me, the idea of losing your face and transforming into someone else could not but help uh, really undermine that evolved circuitry we have for identity. And I, I found it a fascinating question. If you can take a step back from your work um, and look at this story as the whole, what scares you most about this future that you've created? You know, you might be surprised by my answer. And I'd say what scares me most are the aspects of, of people trying to retreat from the future. And then let's say fall to superstition and fear. Because as... as uh, sobering, let's say, as this story is, there will be so many cool opportunities and, and much better living possible and also sustainable manufacturing, all sorts of fascinating things. There will be a dark side to genetic editing and to synthetic biology. But as with any really transformative technology, we don't have the option to put it back into Pandora's box. It's going to be with us. I think many people would be surprised to find out it is already with us. And perhaps this fourth industrial revolution of genetic editing and synthetic biology has already begun. But to me, my biggest fear is actually retreating. And, and so, again, it might surprise you. And, and you know what? That makes a lot of sense if you look at it in a very macro sense. And, and you and you do touch on some really cool things, like the like the growing, literal growing of furniture, or like the 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 tower, the the tower farms, like the hydroponics. Which I mean, you can see stuff like that yep. in Disney World today. That's kind of to make a good story. You kind of have to take the slice of the negative, where there is a lot of opportunity for positive. Well, you know, that's a good point, because I like to think of that the future will be a lot like the present in that there's certain things that we just love and then other things that scare the hell out of us. And why would the future be any different? And my last question for you, one of the times that I actually laughed out loud was, uh, I think it was Fry and Duran talking, and one of them asked the other, what's a Yelp listing? <laughs> um, <laughs> did, where, what other Easter eggs did I miss? What other little 21st century nuggets did I miss in there that you threw in? Oh, I'm not going to give away Easter eggs, but uh, you see, that one you just described I think was funny because so many things that we take for granted go away quickly. Uh, and you mentioned that this story is only 28 years in the future. Now, think back 30 years ago how different the world was. I mean, it was a really substantially different society. Uh, we didn't have you know, com smart computer camera phones that could connect to the entire world in our pocket. Now, I think the, the transformations that are going to happen in the next 28, 30 years are going to be even more radical. So the idea that a major site like Yelp would just go away and no one would care about it to me is is pretty much nothing. Absolutely. Daniel Suarez, thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes to talk about your new book, Change Agent. Really had a great time talking with you. Oh, likewise. Thanks for having me. Startup by Dori Shafrir is a tongue-in-cheek look at the tech industry, but through her three female protagonists, she addresses some serious issues plaguing the modern workplace. It centers around um, a 28-year-old character, named Mac, who has started a company called Takeoff that is a mindfulness app that's supposed to help people 
work more mindfully. That's kind of his uh, slogan. And in the beginning of the book, he is worried because if his company doesn't get another round of funding, they are in danger of going under. In the meantime, um, he is also sort of involved with one of his uh, colleagues. And there's another character named Katya, who is a journalist, and she uncovers a scandal um, involving Mac. Um, And then there's a third character named Sabrina, who works for Mac and is also married to Katya's boss. So all of these people's lives kind of converge in what I think are interesting ways um, as this scandal kind of unfolds. So not only does your book skewer the whole startup culture, but... You know, it also goes after the sexism and then the role of women and also the whole idea that women feel that they need to keep quiet in order to get ahead. Yeah. So that was something that I wanted to explore. You know, there's been a lot of discussion of sexism and sexual harassment in the tech industry lately. Um, When I started the book about two and a half years ago, it was also something that had been coming up. And frankly, I was a little worried, like, oh, maybe we won't be talking about these issues anymore by the time the book comes out. And if anything, I think they've only grown more timely. So that was definitely a theme I wanted to explore. And so, you know, the women in the book, without revealing too much, I'll say that they, they kind of learned that uh, it's better to stick together um, when they are in an industry like tech. And you also take a look at how journalism has evolved. Katya brings up at one point not understanding why everyone's so upset about how popular clickbait is and asking, aren't they just stories that people want to read and what's wrong with giving people what they want? Yeah. So, you know, I've been working in digital media for about 10 years and I've seen a lot of the evolution of the industry. And one thing that I think has been a constant theme is these kind of generational differences between people who came from print media and people who grew up in digital journalism. And, you know, if you if you worked in print or you started in print, um, you didn't really know how people were reacting to your stories. You didn't really know how many people were actually reading your stories. And these people who have grown up in digital media, they are just used to knowing metrics on their stories all the time. And traffic has always been an important driver for them. So, you know, Katya just, this is second nature to her. Um, But something that happens in the beginning of the book is she's told by her boss that the company she works for is going to start uh, reevaluating the metric that they kind of evaluate their employees on. And it's not going to be just traffic anymore. It's going to be engagement and impact. And this kind of throws Katya into a, a tailspin because, She's gotten really good at getting traffic, but she doesn't really know what these new metrics mean. And that's something that I saw again and again in digital journalism, that the metrics just kept changing. And you mentioned working in digital journalism. I know you worked at BuzzFeed. Uh, Mm -hmm. How how much of what you experienced in real life made its way into the book? Are there any of the sort of examples that really stand out in the book that people just laugh at or think, no, that can't actually happen? Are these things that actually happen to you? Um. Well, you know, certainly the the discussions that Katya has about these changing metrics are things that I've experienced, not just at BuzzFeed, but at other places that I've worked. Um, I think that that's just the hallmark of any digital media outfit. Like, as the industry has evolved and we've learned more about how people consume media, um, whether it's traffic or time on the page or sharing, like, these these metrics that are important have always changed, and that's 
that that's definitely something that I drew on for my own experience. And also the snacks. Uh, BuzzFeed has a lot of snacks. <laughs> That's definitely not the case here, and I wish it were. <laughs> and uh, as I mentioned where I am, you kind of sneak in a little soft poke at uh, All News Radio there, albeit at the expense of our competitor, 1010 Wins. <laughs> yeah, so in the book, um, Katya kind of reflects that her parents, whenever they're in the car, they're listening to the radio. And again, to her, you know, she's 24, she doesn't listen to the radio. She doesn't really understand why people listen to the radio. And she's like, I've tried to get my parents to stream stuff on their phones using Bluetooth. But no, they just they just want to listen to the radio. Um, so I, you know, I kind of highlighted that as a little bit of a generational difference. But I should also say, I, you know, I lived in New York for nine years. I love news radio. Um, so <laughs> I, I just kind of wanted to get that in in some way. You're talking about generational differences. I mean, I think your book really does a good job in sort of explaining to um, older generations the whole millennial thinking with the startup with Katya, but then on the flip side, kind of explaining why the older generation still does things the way it does things. Yeah, so um, something that someone said to me that I that I really liked was that they felt like I um, that I wasn't judging millennials that I was just kind of reflecting what their lives are actually like and that was really what I was trying to do I was trying to show what millennials lives are like and what people who are slightly older what their lives are like and not trying to judge either population um, so yeah so that was definitely something that was at the forefront of my mind as I was working on the book so at the end of the book the three women, we find them together at this great apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah. And Sabrina says, you know, she finally knows what she's going to do. Yes. What is she going to do? <laughs> I mean, in my head, I, th I think she decides to try writing that book again of hers and maybe ends up writing one about the startup culture in New York. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I will say that, that that is not far off from what uh, what is kind of in my head for what Sabrina decides to do next. <laughs> and will we get to see what Sabrina or read to, uh, what Sabrina decides to do next? Um, I it, It's definitely something that I'm thinking about um, working on for sure. The 18th book in the iconic V.I. Warshawski series is titled Fallout. Best-selling and award-winning author Sarah Paretsky spoke to our Pat Farnack about it. This time, she's on the hunt for a young filmmaker who may or may not be mixed up with an aging film star, and they're both missing. Yes, I sent them down to Kansas, where I grew up, and I made my aging film star a native of my hometown. They disappear down there, and worried friends send V.I. in hot pursuit. And my poor detective, who's used to the big city, has to figure out how you get information in a small town where nobody wants to talk to an outsider. And yet they all know about her and uh, that she's in town and she, who she's looking for. Yes, the sheriff at one point says to her, you may think you're moving around stealthily, but we all know where you've been and what you eat for breakfast. You use the turbulent days of the Cold War as uh, the backdrop of your story. What made you go back to that era? Was it going back to Kansas and you thought, well, I might as well go back in time too? <laughs> it was really the other way around. Oh. I went back to Kansas. My dad had been a cell biologist at the University of Kansas 
and were kind of on the fringes of biological warfare. In the 60s, he did something quite extraordinary. I don't know if it was stupid, foolhardy, obsessive-compulsive, or just insane, but he went to a conference in Czechoslovakia where everyone worked on his organism, and he got a Czech scientist to inject him with their strain of his bug so that he could bring it back to Kansas and culture it. Oh, my. (laughs) Uh, He got off the plane in Kansas City with a 104-degree fever. He did not start antibiotics until his lab technician came and took a blood sample for him to culture. And this episode has just haunted me for years, and I could not imagine writing a story about it anywhere other than where he actually did it. So I had to get VI out of Chicago and send her down to Kansas. Was he all right? Well, yes. They, the organism he worked with causes typhus, Q fever, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, things like that. So very lethal diseases that can be treated with antibiotics, but not always successfully. But he did make a full recovery. Wow. Well, I like getting back to VI. I, I like that VI took her dog along. It's a minor thing, but it was so important. Yes. (laughs) And she's also going through a long distance breakup. There's a lot on her plate. I know. And and her lover, Jake, is a musician and he's just tired of having a relationship with a woman who is is sort of reckless with the risks that, that she takes. He keeps begging her to stop to find some better, more creative, less less ferocious line of work, and that hurts her feelings. And when VI's feelings are hurt, she she tends to lash out a bit. Is she starting to second-guess herself? She is to, a, to an extent. I think that's a great question, Pat. It's one of the things that I'm, that I'm wrestling with. I'm someone who's constantly second-guessing myself and worrying, did I do this right? Did I offend that person? And after 18 books in my series, all told in the first person, I think that some of my anxieties are starting to bleed through into VI, and I need to figure out a way to draw back and let her be a a less annoying, neurotic person than I am. Well, be that as it may, she certainly is a very entertaining companion. Well, I'm glad you find her so. My husband was always my first reader, and I would hover in the kitchen. He didn't like me to be in the room while he read. And as soon as he started laughing, then I knew that that I'd done the right job again. Well, you certainly did this time. Now, this is uh, your 18th VI novel? It is. I know. It seems extraordinary to me that that I've written that many books. Well, just to keep it symmetrical, are you going to take it to 20, do you think? Or you'll cross <laughs> that bridge when you come to it? As long as, I hope to keep writing as long as the stories keep coming to me. Maybe I'll make it to 30. I don't know. Depends on how long it's given to me to live and to write. I hope it's a long time. Me too. We've been talking to Sarah Paretsky. She is the author of the latest suspense VI novel, Fallout. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Pat. That concludes this week's chapter of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.